Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, July 16th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll talk about the latest coronavirus vaccine data from Moderna and what it means for the race to slow down the pandemic. Next, our colleague Helen Branswell will join us to talk about the dumpster fire that is the U.S. response to COVID-19 and what can be done to turn things around. Finally, we'll be joined by a Seattle physician to talk about her experience with structural racism in academic medicine and what should be done about it. But first, a word from our sponsor. Imagine a world where any disease-causing gene could be silenced. Many say that's impossible, impractical, and unrealistic. But at Alnylam, we believe the RNAi therapeutics we've pioneered have limitless possibilities. We're tackling genetic, infectious, cardiometabolic, CNS, and ocular diseases, where this new class of medicines has the potential to improve millions of lives. Learn more about the future of RNAi therapeutics at alnylam.com future. That's A-L-N-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash F-U-T-U-R-E. Moderna published its phase one results in a peer-reviewed journal. All 45 volunteers who received this vaccine produced an immune response and showed no serious safety concerns. The vaccine was developed with- Eight weeks after the press release that moved global markets, Moderna and its partners in the federal government finally published some early data on their potential vaccine for the novel coronavirus. But the details provide lots of fodder for debate about just how effective Moderna's injection might turn out to be. So, Damien, you and our colleague Matt Herper covered the data release for STAT. What was the goal of this trial? So this was a phase one study that was predominantly meant to determine the safety of the vaccine and to pick a dose to move forward. So they enrolled 45 healthy volunteers and gave them one of three dose strengths of the vaccine and followed them for a little over two months. So the goal, as I mentioned, of of a study like this, even during the pandemic, is to make sure that it's safe enough to move forward. And then secondarily, it's to track whatever benefits it might have. And I think that's where a lot of the attention uh, has, has gone since. Right. So what kind of data did we get on the vaccine's efficacy? So it's important to note at the outset that the goal of any vaccine for coronavirus would be to actually prevent an infection, to protect people from getting COVID-19. But this being a small early stage study, it's not designed to measure that. So instead, what we can look at is how the vaccine affected the immune system. What you want to see is that vaccinated people would generate antibodies against the coronavirus that might theoretically protect them uh, from infection in the future. And we did see that in the Moderna study. So all of the volunteers had fairly dramatic increases in their antibodies compared to baseline after the second of two injections. It's a prime shot and then a booster shot for this vaccine. Um, So when it came to neutralizing antibodies, which are the kind that would actually block the virus from infecting cells, people who got the vaccine were at or above the antibody levels that we see in those who've had COVID-19 and then later recovered. So what does this all mean in practical terms? Does having neutralizing antibodies mean you're protected against COVID-19? So that's an important point underpinning this trial and, and all of the vaccine trials that we're soon to see. We don't know. It would follow logic that it would, that having these antibodies would protect you. But Immunity from COVID-19 might be more complicated than just having antibodies. You know, the, the phrase novel coronavirus, I think the word novel is important to, to keep in mind. We don't know that much about how this virus works. So 
you know, the immune response to a virus includes a wide variety of cells beyond antibodies that fight infection. And we're going to need to see a lot more data on this vaccine and on others before we can say with any confidence that any given one is protective uh, from infection. And then furthermore, I think this is important to note, in this study, the antibody levels started to decline after about two months from the first vaccination. And so that brings up the possibility that even if Moderna's vaccine works, it might not work for as long as people might want. But again, this is something that that we can really only know for sure uh, with larger trials. So, Damien, what about the safety of this vaccine? How tolerable was it in this study? So that's the other big thing we learned. Getting this vaccine is is not a painless experience. So as Stat reported in the past, the highest dose of the vaccine, a 250 microgram dose, led to a few severe reactions of fever and fainting. But even in the middle dose, 100 micrograms, which is the one that Moderna is taking forward to larger studies, all of the patients experienced some form of, of bodily side effect, which was most commonly fatigue, headache, muscle pain, and then pain at the site of injection. All of those side effects were graded by the investigators as mild or moderate, meaning that nobody had to be hospitalized for them. But the data underscore that really any benefit that this vaccine ends up proving to have will come with a trade-off of these side effects. So earlier this month, we saw some detailed data from Pfizer and BioNTech on their Corona vaccine. That one, like Moderna's, uses messenger RNA to produce antibodies. So how do the two vaccines compare against each other? Does one of them seem more promising? So it was very, very tempting to compare the two vaccines directly once we got the two data sets. But you know, every expert that uh, Matt and I talked to really cautioned against doing that. And, and that's because the two companies used different methods and different labs to measure the antibody response and to compare it against patients who had recovered from COVID-19. And so what that means is that, you know, really a one-to-one -one comparison is kind of impossible and, and probably irresponsible. But I do think that to the extent that there's a consensus looking at the two data sets, it would appear that both vaccines had their intended effect on neutralizing antibodies, but then both face really the same questions about whether that effect will last months beyond vaccination. And then, of course, most importantly, whether that effect will actually protect people against getting coronavirus. Damien, what's next? Uh, when are we going to know more about how well Moderna's vaccine actually works? So in a matter of weeks, if not days, Moderna is going to start a placebo-controlled trial with about 30,000 volunteers to truly test whether its vaccine is protective. And so that's obviously the most important data that we'll get um, hopefully later this year. However, in the meantime, we can expect results from an ongoing phase two study um, that's larger than the one we've just described, but you know smaller than, than obviously the phase three. And that should give us a lot more relevant information to kind of benchmark what to expect from this. But then outside of Moderna, there's going to be a great deal of vaccine data to parse in the coming months. Next week, Oxford University and AstraZeneca, who've partnered on a vaccine, they expect to publish phase one data on uh, their potential vaccine. And then we'll get more data from Pfizer and BioNTech has been promised to us. And then in the coming months, we should see data from Merck and Sanofi and Novavax and um, virtually all of the roughly dozen companies that are currently in human trials for these vaccines. So this is a conversation that should get richer, more detailed, and you know more able to make comparisons than, than the one we're having now, uh, hopefully in the next few months. We are approaching the midpoint of our long pandemic summer. And to put it generously, things are looking grim in America. More than 137,000 COVID-19 deaths have been confirmed in the U.S. States all over the country keep setting new daily records for confirmed COVID-19 cases. Many communities are reversing their reopening plans, 
And it's not at all apparent that kids will be able to safely go back to school in the fall. Joining us to talk about the mess that this has become is Helen Branswell, Stats lead reporter covering the pandemic. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. Nice to hear your voices. Helen, you put out a story this week that began this way. There's no point in sugarcoating this. The U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic is a raging dumpster fire. That was quite a line and a deserved one. So how worried and alarmed are you about the situation right now compared to other points in the course of this pandemic? I would say very. Um, you know, things are not going well here. The attempts to flatten the curve in the spring, which, you know, seem to have worked. That took a lot of pain, but all those gains have been squandered by effectively reopening far too quickly in a number of states. Also, by the fact that it seems many people don't actually believe this is a threat and they're not taking it seriously. And as a consequence, there's just uncontrolled spread of the virus in many parts of the country. So in the process of reporting that, Helen, you talked to a lot of public health experts about what would need to be done to turn things around in the U.S., what did they emphasize? You know, the first person I quote in that story is Tony Fauci, who the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who started by saying, you know, we need to go back to phase one. We need to go back to the reopening in many places and do it properly, do it slowly, be more prudent about uh, the way reopening occurs. That's something for starters. But, um, you know, a lot of the experts I spoke to talked about um, better messaging, giving people better tools to deal with, you know, the state of the outbreak where they are, giving them the tools to assess the risk to themselves so that they can make better choices consistent messaging. There isn't a lot of that in this country at the moment. Um, ways to help people help themselves, but also, you know, approaches that governments could take to try to essentially get this under control. So over the past few weeks, I've been seeing more calls for a hard lockdown, a return to what we were doing in late March and April, or perhaps even the stricter stay-at-home orders that we saw in other countries. But the experts you talked to, Helen, said that widespread returns to lockdown must be a last resort, and that may not even be doable. What was their rationale for that? Well, you know, the way Dr. Fauci put it was that it would be a morale breaker, that this just would be counterproductive because it would be so, you know, psychologically devastating for people. I think that the thinking really just is that people wouldn't comply. There is quite a you know, persistent segment of the population that continues to believe that this is not a threat and they won't wear masks. If they won't wear masks in public, why would people assume that they're going to retreat to their homes if told to by the you know authorities in their state? So let's pivot the conversation to politics while sticking with uh, Tony Fauci. Helen, as you know, President Trump and his administration have uh, gradually been distancing themselves from Fauci. And it's really intensified uh, in the past few days. You know, first, White House officials attacked Fauci by distributing some opposition research style documents to reporters. And then trade advisor Peter Navarro published an op-ed in USA Today calling Fauci, quote, wrong about everything. Helen, what is going on here? Well, you know, Dr. Fauci is now the leading voice urging people to be cautious, to uh, 
you know, do the kinds of things that need to be done to bring this virus down to lower levels. Um, as we saw earlier in the outbreak, the administration doesn't like that message and they try to silence people who issue it. For instance, early on, Nancy Missonier from the CDC uh, was warning that, you know, the situation was getting quite dire and she was completely sidelined. You know, she is no longer leading the response to the CDC and uh, she really isn't seen publicly anymore. She, she doesn't brief publicly. So, you know, we've seen them do this before. In the case of Dr. Fauci, I mean, the poll suggests that he's believed more than the president on this issue. And I would think that would rankle. I also think, you know, the administration has is putting its chips in convincing people that this isn't as bad as it seems that the need to reopen the economy is greater than the need to control this virus. And um, that's, you know, all wrapped up in the president's re-election campaign efforts. And, you know, Dr. Fauci's message is inconvenient to, you know, what they're trying to do. So it seems like a case of trying to shoot the messenger. Let's talk a little more about the CDC, which you've been covering for a long time. Uh, President Trump this week retweeted a baseless claim by Chuck Woolery. He's a game show host, claiming that, quote, everyone is lying, end quote, about the coronavirus, including the CDC. So, Helen, what are the potential long-term implications of this effort by Trump to discredit his own agency, especially one that's historically so apolitical? Yeah, it's really a tragedy. You know, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is the gold standard for a public health agency in the world. Countries all over the world have set up their own CDCs and they use that acronym even when it means nothing in their language because they're modeling their approach on the CDC. Um, but in this outbreak, it has been repeatedly um, undermined and sidelined. And we've seen multiple occasions where the CDC has issued guidance for how to for instance, resume church services safely. So, you know, at a point they put up a document saying churches should do this, churches should do that. One of the things that they shouldn't do is have choirs at the moment because singing has been shown to be, um, you know, great at propelling the virus and there have been outbreaks in choirs. So they had recommended no choirs at this time. Uh, the White House decided that churches had sacrificed long enough and that was an overreach on the part of the CDC. So they made them take that out. Uh, likewise, recently, the uh CDC's guidance on how schools could safely reopen and what they should think about. Again, recently, the CDC issued um, guidance on how schools could safely reopen, and uh, the administration made them take it down and water it down because they felt it was too restrictive, and the administration is very keen for schools to reopen. So, you know, an organization that is meant to be uh, issuing um, science-based advice to people and to organizations across the country is issuing advice that has to go through a political filter before it can get published. And, you know, that's just extraordinary and incredibly damaging to the um, credibility of the organization. Helen, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Early in her medical career, Dr. Rachel Isaka encountered a liver transplant patient who was surprised that she, a Black woman, was one of their treating physicians. All of the other physicians in the same room were white. None of them said anything. Today, Isaka is an assistant professor at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and University of Washington in Seattle. She specializes in gastroenterology and hepatology. But even years later, that awkward and painful moment has remained with her. Last week, Rachel wrote an essay in the Journal of the American Medical Association in which she urged all medical professionals to call out and dismantle structural racism in medicine. Rachel joins us to discuss her essay and this important issue. Rachel, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Rachel, your experience in that patient's room was not overt racism. It was not the type of slurs and ugly behavior captured all too often today on social media videos. But as you wrote in your essay, that experience still had an outsized negative impact on you. What were you thinking and feeling at the time? So in that moment, um, I had just started my second year of gastroenterology fellowship. And gastroenterology is a highly competitive specialty And so oftentimes you go through a rigorous application process to get in. I had been chief medical resident at Northwestern University in Chicago. I'd had a great year um, completing hundreds of procedures, having received great reviews from peers and patients. And I was really on this high and going into that second year, really feeling very competent and reassured in the decision I had made to pursue the specific field in medicine. So that encounter in that patient room really brought me right back down to earth. And as I said in the essay, structural racism is really all of the policies and the procedures and the norms that are perpetuated that lead individuals to believe what and who, you know, people should look like. Um, In that moment, that patient had a very specific picture of what her doctor should look like. And that was not what I looked like in that moment. So it really just brought to my attention how oversized the impact of structural racism is in our country. And how did your understanding of that moment change in the intervening years? In that moment, I felt as if it was something that I did wrong. And I felt that my inability to respond was my fault. And I remember having this conversation with my family immediately after, feeling really disappointed that I didn't say something articulate. And I asked them, what would you have said in that moment? And we had this entire brainstorming session and we came up with, you know, why couldn't they have said, it's good for all of us that Dr. Isaka is here. And over the years, I've really begun to evolve to understand that it wasn't my failing. You know, the onus was not on me. And it was really up to the team, and especially those who were leading the team, to have stood up for me. And now that I am an attending physician who leads teams and leads students and trainees, I step into that role because I remember instances like the ones I described where those who were leading me did not step up. So most of the protests and calls for action today around racism and inequality are focused on law enforcement and criminal justice. But you believe medicine also needs its own racial reckoning. What do you think that will require? I think that has to begin with medicine and the medical profession owning and just accepting their own role in perpetuating structural racism. So 
you know, medicine as a profession for years perpetuated this message that Black people did not feel pain, that Black people did not need sleep. A lot of these messages that were perpetuated were used to justify slavery and then later on used to justify denying Black people pain medicines when needed. So one, medicine must first acknowledge its own, you know, kind of role in perpetuating structural racism in medicine by exploiting patients, by excluding individuals. Black people were not allowed initially to practice medicine. And it's only very recently that, you know, we see Black people in medicine. So one, recognizing their role in in exclusion and in exploitation. And then once we recognize that, we need to teach that in a very structured and systematic way to those who are entering the profession. So they have that understanding and therefore don't perpetuate it in their own practice. And once we teach it, then we need to measure if our teaching is working at actually reducing the ways in which new learners and new physicians are interacting with their own colleagues and with their own patients. So Rachel, in your essay, you cite a statistic that Black Americans represent 13% of the U.S. population, but only 3.6% of full-time medical school faculty are Black. So what do medical schools need to do to close that gap? I think we have to do a better job as far as developing the pipeline of those who are entering medicine. Right now, if institutions want to recruit Black people into medicine, all they have to do is you know, go and recruit that individual from a, an existing institution. It just moves the numbers around, but it doesn't actually increase representation. But if medical institutions and healthcare systems invested money, time, energy into junior high schools, high schools, help them develop their science curriculum, encourage that those students pursue medicine and continue to follow them throughout their training, By the time those individuals are ready to make a career choice, medicine is going to be at the top of their mind. And then that provides the opportunity and door for them to walk through to join the profession. But right now, what we're doing as far as just recruiting specific individuals from different institutions to join our own so that, for instance, one institution can say they have XYZ percent of full-time Black faculty, that doesn't really solve the problem. It's just moving the dominoes around. So we've talked mostly here about structural racism and its impact on Black physicians and and physicians of color. But what impact does this have on patients? So the ways that this impacts patients is in some of the examples I provided earlier. We know that there are studies in which learners were taught to believe that Black people don't experience pain. And therefore, when Black people would show up to emergency rooms requesting pain medicines, they would not receive the right pain medicines that they need. When we talk about structural racism, we're really talking about the policies and the practices that are embedded in our current health system. So as a colon cancer researcher, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And what we find is that there are multiple ways to get screened for colon cancer. Oftentimes, individuals who are of underrepresented minority groups, Black, Hispanic, Native Americans, may opt for a non-invasive screening test, a stool-based screening test. Our current government policies state that if somebody chooses that screening test, and if that stool screening test is abnormal, and therefore they need a second, more invasive procedure, that insurance companies don't have to cover that test. Insurance companies can essentially say that they've covered the initial screening preventative test, and therefore the follow-up test, the patient is responsible for paying that. 
And that's an example of a policy that then leads to Black people being less likely to complete colon cancer screening. And as a result, Black men are almost two times more likely to die from colon cancer than white men. So these policies and practices that are in place really, you know, not only harm physicians, but ultimately have really severe and dire consequences for our patients. So what sort of responses have you received uh, to your essay since it was published? The response has been overwhelmingly positive. Of all of the institutions that I've been affiliated with in the past, several individuals have reached out and have now made the essay required reading for learners and for supervisors. Several of the institutions I've been affiliated with are now designing specific programs that will empower those who are in leadership as well as learners to speak up whenever they see bias and in real time when microaggressions happen, whether it's at the patient bedside or in a meeting or conference. And furthermore, they have proposed to study the impact of those interventions on the long-term outcomes for both leaders and learners. And so I'm really quite happy that this is the response it's received. This is what I was hoping for. And as I said in my essay, dismantling structural racism is really a collective effort and everybody needs to play a role. And so the fact that our educational systems are owning this and our healthcare systems are owning this really does encourage me. And I hope that this current movement will lead to the change that has been long overdue in our country. Rachel, thanks so much for sharing your story and for joining us. Thank you so much. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Debonado and Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you make of Moderna's data. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.